back to Redemption's Table. We are celebrating a special table today on this Thursday right here in Holy Week, the week where we remember the last earthly days of Jesus's life. And on Thursday, he and his disciples celebrated a Passover meal around a table. It was there that Jesus broke the bread, symbolizing his body. He poured the wine, symbolizing his blood. Judas, his disciple, slipped out mid-meal to arrange Jesus' betrayal. And towards the end of the evening, Jesus prays a powerful prayer. You can find that in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, where he not only prays for his disciples, but he also prays for you and I, those who would follow him. And then the Gospels of Matthew and Mark tell how they ended the celebration with a song. They got up from the table. They left the upper room They walk through the streets of Jerusalem under the light of a full moon. It is springtime, just like now. They walk out the Jerusalem city gate. They cross the Kidron Brook, a place in my imagination. I've always thought it sounded so lovely until I learned that Kidron means murky and dark. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives on that Thursday evening, and his disciples followed him. And it says, on reaching the place, he spoke to them. On reaching the place. Luke doesn't even identify this place as the Garden of Gethsemane. He just casually calls it the place. The Garden of Gethsemane was the place where Jesus often went to pray. Evidently, the garden was owned by a wealthy friend who had given Jesus permission to go there whenever he needed a place to rest and sleep and meditate. So he goes out as usual on this Thursday night as if it were any other night, only it is not. The betrayer is on the loose. At that very moment, Judas was meeting with the chief priest and the temple guard. It is no secret to Judas where Jesus will be. If he's not in the upper room, he can be found at the place. On reaching the place, Jesus is very intentional as to where he was going that night, and even more so why he was going there. On reaching the place, he said to his disciples, pray that you will not fall into temptation. 
But Jesus knows all that is about to go down. He had already warned Peter en route between the meal and the garden to be ready. He told Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter replied, that's not going to happen. All the other disciples make the same pledge. So Jesus leads them to the garden. Matthew and Mark tells us that Jesus leaves eight of his disciples up towards the front of the garden, and he instructs them, watch and pray. He's not posting a guard so they can escape. He's putting them there for them to pray and keep an eye out. Because from that vantage point, they will see the torches of the temple guard exiting the city gate of Jerusalem, cross the Kidron Valley to where they were located. And then Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, a little further into the garden, and he assigns them a place to pray. And he commands them, pray for yourselves. And then he withdrew to pray for himself. His last hours of freedom were spent in prayer. It says he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. A stone's throw away, far enough apart for solitude, but still within earshot. Peter, James, and John would be close enough to hear what Jesus is about to pray. Now Luke, the gospel writer, he uses an economy of words here. It just simply says, Jesus knelt down and prayed. The Gospels of Matthew and Mark are a little more graphic. Matthew 26 says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground. The Garden of Gethsemane is about to become the most significant battlefield in human history. If I were to ask you to name the most significant battlefields in the history of the world, you might say Normandy or Midway, Gettysburg. Perhaps you would mention Golgotha, Calvary where Jesus died on the cross. See, I contend if Jesus had not won this battle of prayer fought in the Garden of Gethsemane, the cross would have never happened. The stress of the gathering storm is upon him there in that garden. This is pre-traumatic stress. And again, Luke uses an economy of words. He doesn't even tell about the dividing of the three disciples from the rest as Matthew and Mark do says before Jesus withdraws a stone's throw away, he confides in Peter, James, and John. It says, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, this is, was more than a command from their Lord and Master. This is a plea from a friend. Most likely, this, the disciples had never seen Jesus like this. I mean, you could almost smell his fear. Jesus appears rattled. He said, I'm overwhelmed. The forces of darkness and evil are already descending on him. Judas and the religious leaders have already unleashed their attack. The snake is in the garden again, this time the garden of Gethsemane. The boa constrictor of distress is encircling Jesus' whereabouts and is dangling from the olive trees. Gethsemane means oil press. The snake is in the garden. Gethsemane is the oil press. And Jesus is the olive. You see, we have no idea of the hell that was about to be unleashed upon Jesus. We can only imagine. 
But just the stress of that gathering storm was enough to bring Jesus to a moment of impasse in the garden. It says Jesus fell on his face and he began to pray. And Mark gets real intimate with his prayer. It says that Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, everything is possible with you. If you are willing, Father, take this cup from me. In the Greek language, Jesus is not giving a one-and-done prayer. He kept on praying. He kept on bringing this petition back up to his Father over and over again. And again, Matthew and Mark inform us there is three rounds of intense prayer like this, each round lasting about an hour. So Jesus is prayer wrestling here, just like Job. Jesus is searching for another way to achieve the salvation of the world, another way other than the cross, And he is pleading with God, is there another possibility we might have overlooked? And again, this was triggered by the gathering stress of what was about to unfold. I want to clarify here, Jesus is not afraid of death, okay? He's the resurrection. In John 11, 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus' death was always the plan. Jesus' death was why Jesus came to earth. Under the leadership of his Father, the truth and authority of Jesus' lordship over death had been clearly established. Remember, if you've read John chapter 11 about Jesus raising Lazarus? After Lazarus had died, day one, Mary and Martha sent Jesus a telegram. said, your friend, our brother, is about to die. Jesus said, own it, right No, that's not what he said at all. He stays where he is for two whole days after receiving the news. And Lazarus dies. Jesus doesn't show up until Lazarus was four days dead. When he arrives, everyone's in a snit. Mary, Martha, the crowd. Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb. He orders the stone to be rolled away, and then Jesus prays, and he tips his hand here. He said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, in the Gospel of John, the word believed is used 84 times. It never once refers to head knowledge. Every time it was used, it means believe to the point of taking action. So Jesus was saying, that they may believe to the point of taking action that you sent me. What was Jesus doing there? He was establishing precedence. He is establishing his authority over death because in a matter of days, Jesus will be dead himself. He knew he would only be dead in the ground for three days. He knew his resurrection was coming. He has established his authority over death with Lazarus by praying to his father, This would be an impetus of faith to those who might question Jesus' own defeat of death. If he resurrected Lazarus from death after four days, how hard can it be for him to resurrect himself after three days? And how hard can it be for him to resurrect you and me after however long between our death and his coming? So I say all that to say this. Jesus was not afraid of death. That's not the reason for the impasse. And Jesus was not afraid of the crucifixion. As horrible as that method of death is, the cross itself is not the cup Jesus is asking God to remove. It's not the cup that has Jesus rattled. It's what's in the cup. So what's in the cup? 
just every sin that has ever been and will ever be committed. Jesus did not know sin personally. He was sinless, but he had witnessed the wages of sin. He had experienced just a foretaste of what sin does to us. He had experienced his hometown neighbors and fellow synagogue goers try to kill him one day when they did not like what he said from the pulpit. He had observed the hatred kindled by religious leaders who supposedly knew God and knew better. He hung out with sinners at the local bar in the worst parts of town. He could see the damage of sin within their souls. He smelled the stench of rotting flesh as he touched and healed lepers and raised Lazarus. All of this onslaught of sickness and death caused by sin. Now, I'm not trying to take you back to some sin in your life where you have already been forgiven so that you feel guilt all over again. So don't let Satan lead you there, okay? But just for a moment, can you remember a time when you were most ashamed because of a sin you had committed? Remember that pain? Remember that stress? Jesus started feeling all of your stress the night of Gethsemane. Remember your most stressful season. Maybe not as a result of your sin, but because someone sinned against you. Or the consequences of living in a broken world came to your doorstep, came to your home. You lost someone to death. Remember that season of grief? I have felt grief over and over again for days on end, feeling as if the elephant in the room had decided to sit on top of my chest. And Jesus felt all of that stress. In a few hours of Gethsemane, Jesus experienced all the stress found in 42 chapters of Job. In 180 minutes of Gethsemane, Jesus experienced the 21 years of Joseph's sojourn from the time he was thrown into a pit by his brothers until his brothers stood reunited before him there in the book of Genesis. In a few hours, Jesus felt the stress of the displacement, terrorization, and annihilation of 6.5 million of his chosen people during World War II in Nazi Germany. And on and on we could go. Every sin, every hungry child, every slave, every trafficked person, every abortion, every broken home, every, every, every. Jesus not only felt the stress, but he was about to become the stress. That's what's in the cup. Every sin that has ever been and will ever be committed, he was about to pay for it. But not only that, he was about to become it. One of the verses that blows me away is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But not only that, when Jesus had all our sin placed upon him as a sacrifice as he hung on the cross, and when he became all our sin for us in that moment, that moment he already had discerned was on its way, he would experience something he had never known before, separation from God. And with the gathering storm of stress unleashed before experiencing the wages of sin, and with the inconceivable separation raging through his heart, soul, and body, he cried out, Take this cup from me. Do you blame him? 
Oh, but I am so grateful that the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, he also prayed himself. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as Jesus prayed, he prayed, Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And again, Matthew and Mark informs us, this prayer went on for three rounds. This is not que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. This is a genuine asking for God to make another way to save people from their sins. But if another way is not possible, then surrendering to God's will, God's plan, God's way. You know what? Obviously, by the way, God didn't answer Jesus's prayer. There was no other way. Simon Peter, while he was awake, was close enough to hear Jesus' prayer, and he was close enough to understand God's answer. No, Jesus, there is no other way. You must go to the cross. You must shed your innocent blood for all that guilt. You must become sin. You must face death as sin. Face death as a sinner. Face death separated from me so that no one will ever have to again. In Acts chapter 4, Peter was called on the carpet by the religious leaders for preaching Jesus to the people. Peter said, salvation is found in no one else other than Jesus Christ, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. I want to tell you something else that hasn't happened either. God hasn't changed his mind. I mean, could you imagine God coming up to Jesus one day in heaven and saying, son, I changed my mind. There are a lot of smart people down there on earth today, and they carry a lot of weight because they have a lot of followers on Instagram, and some of them even have their own television shows. And son, they are telling people who listen to them that there are many ways to get to me, that all religions are the same, that all religious roads lead up to the top of the same mountain. And so, son, I hope you don't mind, but I have decided to go along with them. I hope you don't mind because I know being separated from me was hard for you when you died on the cross and you did plead with me in Gethsemane to come up with another way. And son, I just couldn't think of one at the time. Son, I hope you'll forgive me for that. Really? That's what you're implying if you believe all religions are the same. If you believe all religious roads lead to God when you die. If you believe in the opinion of some celebrity over the truth of the Word of God. Any believer who chooses such nonsense, such lies from the father of lies, who is not in the Word of God enough to know the truth from wishful thinking, needs to go back to Gethsemane to experience the stress of the gathering storm, to realize the seriousness of the impasse that flared up between Jesus and his father, and to witness the resolve with which Jesus got up and walked from Gethsemane to Golgotha. Luke tells us that an angel from heaven appeared to Jesus and strengthened him. And being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. A similar occurrence happened after Jesus spent 40 days in the desert being tempted by the devil in Matthew 4, 11. It says the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Physical strengthening is what Jesus receives here. This is not Gatorade. This is angel aid. Why did he need it? Because he was in anguish. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling. 
Luke is a physician, and what he is describing here is an actual physical phenomenon called hematidrosis. This occurs when someone is under great emotional stress, so much so that the tiny blood vessels rupture in the sweat glands and produce a mixture of blood and sweat. Jesus started shedding his blood for us in Gethsemane. It says, when he arose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. He said, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Well, when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, the cross was settled. The battle of Gethsemane had been won. As Jesus surrendered to the Father's will, he also spoke into his own internal storm, peace, be still, resolved, stress. The momentary impasse of his own will had been broken, resolved. How do we know this? Because the way he rose from prayer was different than the way he collapsed in prayer. Because Jesus' actions from that moment forward represented the Father's perfect plan. Because the Father trusted His Son to be in charge of His own crucifixion. Just look at how He conducted Himself. Doesn't He look like Jesus? When Peter struck the servant of the high priest with a sword and lopped off his ear, Jesus heals the ear and tells the disciples to put away their swords. When the high priest slapped Jesus, Jesus didn't slap him back. If Jesus had still been struggling with stress... They would have needed a new high priest because the old one would have been dead. As he is being crucified, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when they removed Jesus from the cross, your sin and my sin and all sin was resolved, forgiven, redeemed, paid, done. All left for anyone to do now is ask for forgiveness and believe in Jesus to the point of taking action and confess he is Lord. And to back that up, well, that was Friday. Just wait till we get to Sunday. We return once again to the second half of Celebrity by Ross King. Until next week.
stop this now You can't shut him up Shut him down The secret's truly Finally out There's no room for denial So you can tell your 